And this morning, we're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 6. If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn there. If you're in need of a Bible to follow along, right in front of you in the back of the pew, you should find one. There's an index a few pages in that will lead you to the New Testament book of the Gospel of John, chapter 6. For the past three weeks, we've been looking at occasions where Jesus is a guest in someone else's house. We've been looking as he attends other people's homes and enjoys uh, their hospitality and using that as a lens to understand hospitality from a Christian perspective. This morning's passage is a little bit different because this is a place where Jesus operates not as guest, but as host. Okay, Um, what has happened just prior to the passage we're going to read this morning is that Jesus, during an occasion where he's out a distance away from um, away from the towns and cities in the wilderness, has taught a crowd all day until they're all hungry. And he miraculously uses the small lunch of one boy to feed 5,000 men and their families. Uh, And not only is everybody well-fed from this small offering, but there's 12 baskets of leftovers following. And so Jesus here operates as host. He takes care of the needs of those he are teaching. And what happens here is a few days (laughs) later, that same crowd comes back looking for more. They come back, they want to see Jesus work again, they want to be fed again. In fact, they illustrate, pointing back to the Old Testament, when Moses was leading Israel through the wilderness, and for 40 years, God provided daily for them with manna from heaven. And so the comparison they're suggesting is, all right, if you're really the worker of God, then why don't you do like Moses and just provide for all of our needs continuously, daily? Why doesn't this continue? And what we learned in our passage this morning uh, is uh, that everything we've talked about so far, loving the stranger, taking those we do not know who are different than us and bringing them into our lives, bringing them into our homes, making them first family uh, or neighbors and then family. Uh, and then second, we looked at eating with sinners. So not distinguishing ourselves against others or trying to keep socially pure by not hanging out with those type of people, but having an open table to all comers Uh, And then finally, we talked about um, taking care of the needs of those who have them, sharing with those in need, okay? All three of those things, loving the stranger, eating with sinners, sharing with those in need, all of those things are incomplete in and of themselves. Now, listen to me carefully. I'm not saying that they're not good things. Generally, pragmatically, the world would be a much better place if everybody lived that way. Opening their home to strangers, making no uh, distinguishing mark between them and other people in terms of sin and sharing their table, sharing what they have with those who have needs. But Christian hospitality is incomplete if that's where it stops. 
Jesus here is presented. He's done those things. He's manifested those things. And they're hungry for more. But here he draws a line in the sand and he pushes beyond to something greater. What I'm suggesting to you is that we are not finished in Christian hospitality until until we invite people to feast on Jesus. Okay? So, if you'll read the passage with me, we're going to pick up here in verse 48 and read through verse 58 of John chapter 6. Jesus, speaking to this crowd who has come looking for more bread, says, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Father, we desire as Christians, as your church this morning, to be an outpost for your kingdom. We desire for invitations to our table to both represent and include an invitation to your table. We desire, Lord, to live in light uh, of the hospitality that you've shown us in Jesus Christ and express that in our daily lives to our neighbors. And so I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us by your spirit this morning that you would teach us your ways and the heart of these realities. In Jesus' name, amen. So here this crowd gathers again. And this passage is a long one. If we wanted to get the whole story, we'd have to go all the way back to verse 22 and read there. In fact, it doesn't finish where we finish, but rolls through the end of the chapter. There's a lot going on here, but I wanted to just focus on this center piece. We can only really understand it in its context. Okay? As I mentioned, the crowds have come back and they've basically asked for Jesus to continue to provide miraculously for their needs. They even have a biblical precedent for that request, just as Moses had done in the wilderness. And it is intriguing here that Jesus actively refuses. He doesn't meet their request. In fact, he challenges their desires as being inappropriate. Notice what he says uh, 
earlier in verse 26. When, when they come to him, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. And so they've come requesting a sign, which for them was a validation of Jesus' ministry. It had to do with his identity. And he says, no, this is actually just about the food. Jesus challenges that. He presses deeper here. He pushes beyond that. Now, this is uh, this illustration that they use of the wilderness, Jesus also identifies, but understand what that time was. More significantly than any other time in history, we see God directly and continuously, miraculously providing for people. Every meal that Israel ate in the wilderness for 40 consecutive years was miraculously provided. And Jesus knows that that's what they would like to happen here. And not only does he refuse it, but he says, you're missing out on something. You're missing out on something. You see, I think sometimes we feel like what makes our hospitality incomplete uh, is, is its inability to meet all the needs. How many strangers can you fit in your home? How many strangers can you fit in your home if you include, uh, you know, a full house every night on rotation for the rest of your life? It pales in comparison to the distance and the differences and the number of people in the world. Of course it does. You're just one person. Needs are another way. We talked last week about the significant value of inviting those who have nothing to eat those who have nothing to offer you into return into your own table. But I think a lot of us look at the needs that are out there and we recognize that's just not enough. We're challenged by that. And Jesus here says the same thing. It's not enough. But as he illustrates his point, he contrasts it with a time where it really was. A time where, according to Exodus, all those who gathered little and all those who gathered much had exactly enough. Despite the fact that Israel, about two million people, were living in the wilderness for 40 years, they were sustained without hunger every day. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Feeding stomachs, making friends, it's not enough. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is because Jesus points beyond the bread that he had shared a few days earlier, beyond the miracle of the manna of heaven to a greater meal, to a greater need, to a greater invitation, a greater display of hospitality. Notice again what he says in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Now I want you to notice that as he uses this picture of bread throughout this, he describes it in different ways. So here it's the bread of life. Then it's the living bread. And then it's the true or bread indeed, the true bread, the real bread if you have the NIV. Each one of those uh, brings us beyond the food we set on our table to a greater need, a greater offering. Okay. That first one, uh, he says that he is the bread of life and then notice how he contrasts it with those ongoing uh, meals, miraculous meals in the wilderness. He says, verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. 
So what does Jesus mean here when he identifies himself as the bread of life? He's contrasting it with the bread that did not sustain past death, right? Which is a normal and usual thing. I'm assuming most of us eat relatively regularly, and let's be honest, if we didn't, we would die. But it doesn't matter how consistently and regularly you eat, death is still on the menu, right? It's still the last course uh, of all of our lives. That is part of the thing. And so when Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life here, he's talking about a nourishment that goes above and beyond our daily physical necessities. He is the bread of life. In fact, he pushes it and he says, not only did they die in the wilderness, but this bread from heaven, anyone who partakes of it will live eternally. You see, there's no getting around here that for us as Christians, Jesus sets a higher agenda that comes with a higher assessment of need. We can't settle for full bellies and new friends because there's a greater pressing problem that, it in, uh, that uh, impacts every guest at our table, and that's the reality of death. So not only does Jesus <coughs> identify himself as the bread that brings life here, but he also identifies himself in verse 51 as the living bread. Look at that. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That goes further. He says the same thing again. This is a bread that brings life. Those who eat here will live eternally. But when he identifies as the living bread, he says the way that I'm going to do this is through my life. Right? Living bread is a strange metaphor, is it not? Okay. Generally, we don't like to eat living things. It makes us uncomfortable. In fact, for some of you, you don't like to eat, uh, you know, uh, as, as vegans or vegetarians, a particular category of living things even after they're dead, okay? But when Jesus identifies himself as the living bread here, he's pushing well beyond that, okay? I think one of the things that's suggested in this idea here, okay, is when, when our table is set, we can be grateful for the food that is on it. Okay. We can recognize the cost that took for those things to come to the table. We can think of um, the practices of particular tribes, right, who would go out hunting and when they killed the animal would thank that animal for its sacrifice because through that sacrifice they lived. But when Jesus identifies himself as the living bread here, it's different and here's why. Because all of those lives, whether it's the life of a carrot or the life of a, of, you know, of a deer, those were taken. But Jesus' is given. Willingly, freely, fully, his life is laid down on our behalf. That's what he says. Listen again there to that verse, 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, you came to me as host, but you also have to come to me as feast. And he says that, the, that I'm, what I'm talking about here, the bread that I offer you is nothing less than my own life that I lay down. Consider this. The men who write the New Testament, <coughs> those who respond and carry forth the good news of Christianity, look at this brutal, criminal death of Jesus as being the most significant thing that ever happened in history. 
They point to that death and they say, in this death is life for us. In this death is full and complete forgiveness. In this death is the reconciliation of you and God and everyone else, in fact, the entire universe. It's very broad and it all points to that thing. But would it it have been the same if while Jesus was rowing his boat across the Sea of Galilee, he slipped and fell in and drowned? Would there be any Christianity if that were the case? No. The significance of Jesus' death is bound up in the fact that it was willing and therefore loving and that it was substitutionary. What I mean by substitutionary is it's not just that Jesus died and that's significant, it's that Jesus died for you, in your place, on your behalf. That's the language he suggests here when he says that he gives for the life of the world his own flesh. When we talk about Jesus as the living bread, we need to see it for that, that a life was given freely and fully and completely on our behalf. The last thing he identifies himself here as in this metaphor of bread uh, is that uh, uh, is in verse 53. He says, he said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Side note, the metaphor's just gotten really intense. Somebody says, I'm like bread, or you say to, you know, your significant other, you nourish me, you sustain me. We get that. But here he says, you need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. Now, we should take that as being not just strange, but offensive. But we should also remember it in this context. Okay? For the Jews who live under kosher law, they even drained their meat so that no blood would be consumed by them. The law required that they were not to encounter blood in any way. And it's to this crowd that Jesus says, either you drink my blood or salvation is nothing. Either you drink my blood or you have no part with me and therefore no part with the God who sent me. It's provocative. It's so provocative that this crowd of people is disturbed and they leave. In such numbers that Jesus turns to his own disciples and asks them, are you going to leave as well? Right? This is a provocative statement, but notice what he says next in verse 55. He says, for my flesh is true, blood, or true food and my blood is true drink. Okay. Now, your translation may say, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is food indeed. Or if you're reading the NIV this morning, uh, my flesh is the real blood. Or excuse me, my flesh is the real food. My blood is the real drink. What is he suggesting here? It's a pretty significant thing. Okay. What Jesus is suggesting here is not that our physical nourishment that we receive through food and drink is a good illustration of what God does in Jesus, but that it's actually intentionally designed to point to something more important. He says every meal you have is a sign of something more significant. Why did God design it so that you need food to eat? You know what it says in Exodus? Why did God send manna to feed his people in the wilderness every day? so that they would learn that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay. Our need to eat physically is intentionally designed to show us our need 
spiritually. And Jesus says, I am the one you need. His identification here makes himself not just the most significant human being who has ever lived, but the only one who is essential for life. The real bread, the real blood. Everything that we experience is a sign that signifies, and what does it signify? It signifies this. Every time we give thanks for the food that's on our table, we should be reflecting on the fact that God has provided what we ultimately need in Jesus Christ and give thanks for that. That's the identification that Jesus makes here. It's significant. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, if you come to me, I will feed you spiritually and leave it there. And we would go, okay, so if we follow Jesus' teachings, if we just live a life like Jesus did, if we follow his example, he says, no, it's my flesh crucified for you. It's my blood spilt for you. And if you don't partake of that, then you have nothing, nothing but death. Do you understand now why Christian hospitality is incomplete unless we also convey this same invitation? Unless we also understand this same necessity? Unless we see the greatest need of the strangers in our community of not just friendship, of the sinners in our community of not just acceptance, of the needy in our community, of not just full stomachs and warm clothing and a place to sleep, but of of an encounter with the food indeed, with an encounter with the drink indeed. Even Jesus himself, who looked out on this crowd of people and had compassion upon them, and so he fed them. He couldn't stop there. And Side note, he never did. This uh, intention Jesus has when he enjoys the hospitality of others or when he offers it always leads to the same place. In John chapter 4, Jesus enjoys the hospitality of a woman as the stranger, seated at a well in the city of Samaria, a woman who's coming to get water for her daily needs. He turns to her and he says, please give me a drink of water. Now, in doing so, he's crossing significant boundaries because not only were men and women not usually allowed to talk in public socially, not strange men and women who never met each other, but also she's a Samaritan. And generally, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so she's shocked by this reality. But halfway through the conversation, he turns the whole thing and he says, I'll tell you the truth. If you understood the water that I have, you'd be the one coming to me for a drink. Even there, just a conversation around the water cooler, Jesus turns to talk about himself. True Christian hospitality is not just an invitation to our table, but the one that God has laid freely and fully and abundantly in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to notice here is that when Jesus does this, it's confrontational. Notice verse 52 again. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? By bringing this up here, by pushing this line, he causes confusion. He causes controversy. It says here that they were debating amongst themselves, and they all had suggestions, but none of them had the right answers. Uh, This is a stirred-up crowd. And you would think... Jesus, meek and mild, would cut through the tension and go, hey, I'm being metaphorical. Chill out. 
And instead, as we just read, he doubles down. He takes their confusion and their concerns and their misunderstandings. And listen again to the tone here. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, side note, that's the word we get our word amen from. Amen just means so be it. And Jesus here, he, he says, I want you to understand that what I'm saying is, is absolutely true. And what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in, me, life in you. That is confrontational. It's provocative. It's challenging. Jesus, well knowing what's going to happen, lays it on the table. Okay. And once again, this is how we see Jesus living out his whole life. We saw it in the past few weeks. Twice we saw Jesus enjoying the hospitality of a Pharisee. And he goes, you know what I'd really like to talk about? I'd like to talk about how you're doing this all wrong. Right? And so he says to one man... He says, okay, you're hosting this for all of your friends, and because of that, they give you, you know, uh, the perks that come with having good, wealthy, significant friends. He says, but you really should invite people who can't pay you back. He turns to the guests, and he says, all of you came, and you wanted the seat of honor here, and he says, but you shouldn't have chose that. You should have taken the lesser seat. When he sits with Simon, and a woman comes in and begins to anoint his feet in oil, And Simon thinks to himself, there we go. That's the evidence I was looking for. That proves that Jesus is a fraud because if he were really a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman in her line of work anywhere near him. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And what does he go on to say? He says, Simon, you've been a terrible host. This woman has taken care of me better than you have. And then he expresses the fact that Simon's greatest problem is that he doesn't understand his own need for God. Jesus always goes there. It is not that when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we shouldn't understand and step in line and follow in his compassion and his, his desire to improve the lives around him and his broad love for all human beings. It is that all of those things are incomplete if it doesn't come to this feast, and that is always provocative. Paul tells us that the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. It's an offense. In fact, recognize here that that's where the real offense lies. Okay. As we can imagine, don't get the idea here that the Jewish crowd that's gathered around Jesus is dumber than we are and think that he's really talking about cannibalism and that's what they're bothered by. Okay. They have no place for a Messiah who's going to die. They're expecting a victorious leader to show up and deliver them from Rome. And here Jesus is talking about death. And that is a constant struggle, not just for the opponents of Jesus, but also for his disciples. They wrestle with this. They don't understand this. They can't comprehend this. And the truth is, there is a direct offense here. And that offense is the gospel message. It's twofold. One, Jesus had to die for you. Had to. In fact, it was so significant that had to that there was no other way. Nothing you can do is enough, sufficient. That means owning up to your own need for Jesus. It means recognizing your own sins. It means identifying, not just with other people as humans, but with others as sinners, like we talked about. People who are also in need. 
It's also provocative because, uh, because in this reality is just the horror that comes with the cross. We lose sight of this all the time. But have you ever thought about how surreal it is that people would hang a crucifix around their neck? An implement of torture and of death that was wielded by a vicious, conquering power? Paul says it's offensive, it's a stumbling block, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the wisdom and the power of God. Listen, here's what I find in myself when it comes to hospitality. The way that I've generally thought about this is uh, that I seek a lowest common denominator in what's going to happen in that evening so that everybody is comfortable. And I don't just find it around my table when I invite guests who are not Christians to my house. I find it in our service here. I naturally have a tendency to seek to accommodate and basically say, this is how we welcome people. We welcome them by by setting the standard very low and by not challenging them or provoking them. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus loved people and he also spoke the truth in love. Jesus confronted and challenged. Jesus often offended. Now, I want to be really clear here. There is only one offense that we should be focused on. What I'm suggesting to you is not that you should invite people over who, (coughs) you know, in your opinion, are sinning in terrible ways and just start right there and just use this as an opportunity to hammer them. There's only one offense, and if they stumble before that, that's not Christian hospitality either. There's only one place where we're to trip people up, and that's the reality of the cross. Now, there may come a time where that involves illustrating from their real-life circumstances, but our goal is not like Jonah walking through the streets of Nineveh, Nineveh just proclaiming 40 days and then the judgment. Our goal is to elevate Christ. It begins with the table open and offered and invited And then we have to deal with the reason why people say they don't want it or refuse it or those types of things. But the offense that Jesus pursues consistently is this one. It's the cross. It's the reality of Jesus' death on our behalf. And we need to be the same way. As we talked about when we talked about eating with sinners, we don't do that because sin is no big deal. We don't do that because we want to downplay the significance of these things. We do that because the stakes are high. We eat with sinners so that we coming in contact with them might be an opportunity for them to come in contact with salvation, with Jesus. Okay. And so our meals need to bring up Jesus or they're incomplete. But there's a problem here. There was an occasion. Um, I used to work for a, for a small Bible college. And I was high, off, high enough up in the leadership that sometimes we had to deal with student discipline. Sometimes due to code of contact, conduct or lack of effort or these types of things, we'd have to sit down, up, sit down with students and confront them with things. And there was one particular student 
who just blew our minds with his ability to intentionally break the rules. He came up to us one time in the middle of a semester and he just said, I thought I should tell you, but last night I just had this urge and I went downtown and I found a crack whore and I just smoked crack with her. We, we <laughs> but the, the biggest problem with him was not that, it was the way he behaved in the classes. He was so critical and so confrontational and so challenging. We kept just asking him, why are you here? You obviously don't have anything to learn from us. Why are you here? So anyways, it came to a point where it hit critical mass and we had to dismiss him from the school. Okay, so years later I get a call from him and he wants to invite me to dinner. And he also invites the head of the school. And so we're like, oh, interesting. Maybe this is going to be some sort of reconciliation. Maybe this is going to be an apology. What is this about? So we get to the dinner table and we're having dinner. I was at Red Robin, they had a brand new infant. It was total chaos. But in the middle of it, he reaches down and he pulls up a box of protein powder and starts to pitch us for his business. And it caught me so off guard. Whatever I thought was going to happen that night, that was not it. But we were just a contact for his multi-level marketing job. Blew my mind. The problem is, I think for many of us, when we hear about what we've just talked about, that's either what we envision or what it's going to look like when it happens, okay? Uh, let me be clear, I didn't buy any protein powder that night, okay? And I think the reasons are, are clear outside of my, my physique. Uh, I was relatively offended. I, I mean, in a very funny way. We, as soon as we got into the car, we laughed the whole way home. But it was surreal to me because of that offense that with all the division and the difficulty in our relationship, to see just exposed naturally that relationship for what it was, just a business opportunity, it, there was no hospitality there, was it? Okay. Here's the thing, and I've been dwelling on this a lot. When Jesus offers himself up as the feast here and completes his hospitality by doing so, obviously our role is unique. Listen again to what Jesus says in uh, verse 57. Follow the logic of this sentence. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will <coughs> also live because of me. Okay. Now, if you look at John's gospel as a whole, basically he constantly identifies, Jesus constantly identifies as the one who was sent from the Father and has the life of the Father in himself. And so those who come to Jesus come so that they might have life, okay? It's almost like, think of, think of electricity here. There's this connection that connects you with the electricity. But our goal is not to connect people with us and complete the chain and move it down because we don't have life in ourselves, but to connect people with Jesus. So it's different, okay? We may demonstrate the power of the gospel by living sacrificially like Jesus did, but it won't be our sacrifice that atones for anyone, right? Okay. What that means is we're not inviting people to feast on us. In fact, we're not even inviting people to be a part of our table. We're inviting people as guests to a host who is given an open invitation. We're inviting people to a table that has been set for others. Okay. And here's the thing. This only works fully and truly when we are also 
partaking of the feast. In the beginning of this, uh, Jesus, in the tense that he uses when he says, uh, anyone who eats the bread, it's in the aorist, which is not a tense we have in English. Okay? The aorist tense is, is a past tense that speaks of a specific, uh, particular moment in time. Okay? So I want you to imagine a timeline, and then I want you to put a dot on that timeline. When you use a verb to describe just that dot, that's the aorist tense. Okay? And that understanding that in our New Testament brings about a bunch of amazing things. So when it says in Romans that, do you not know that you died with Christ? That's in the aorist tense. When you go to the timeline of history, you can put a dot on that crucifixion and say, there, I died with Jesus. Okay? That's what he says here about eating. When he talks about eating the bread, he's talking about faith. He's talking about believing in Jesus Christ. And that's a one-time acceptance of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But in the second half here, when he says in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh, that's in the present active tense. Whoever is continuously nourishing themselves on me. And sometimes we have a hard time juxtaposing those two things. Does salvation come from a single decision or is it something that we constantly need to engage in? Is this like Jesus says to the woman, whoever drinks of me will never need to drink again? Or is it like the food and drink here that you must constantly nourish yourself on it? But it's a false dichotomy. Jesus is our eternal life, but he's also our daily life. Jesus is what sustains us in and of itself in just that receiving of what he offers, but it's also what sustains us on the daily. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you is a couple of things. One, if you are not regularly and consistently nourishing yourself on Jesus, finding the value of the gospel in your current circumstances, connecting your current needs with God's provision in Jesus, then this is just going to be some sort of religious duty on the side. Just another thing that you, uh, you were doing to um, earn God's approval or go through the motions or these types of things. Who make the best evangelists for a product? The ones who have been most impacted by it, right? That's why it used to be in the 90s that any awkward product, the host would identify not just as being the president, but also a member, right? When we look at how our culture works, one of the most successful business models we have out there is just fan promoted. Do you remember when Starbucks didn't have commercials? Why? They didn't need them. Word of mouth was all that was necessary. People loved what they were doing. Okay. That's the way that evangelism works in the New Testament. That's why Peter and John, even under severe threat of their own lives, say, you tell us whether it's better to listen to you or to God, but we can't help but share what we've seen and heard. It's an overflow because they were hungry and they've been nourished and they invite people into that nourishment. Okay. But there's another part of this I want you to reflect on. Sometimes I think our evangelistic endeavors feel just like that meal I had with my friend. Because the truth is, that conversation you're about to have with Jesus wouldn't be your usual dinner conversation if there wasn't a non-Christian present. And so it's like, awkwardly, you just pull this thing up that you're not using, but you know they could use, and you just present it to them. You give them the pitch. What if 
What if your meals, what if your habits, what if your rhythms of feeding on Jesus were daily an open invitation? What if you made practices when you nourish your body at dinner to also nourish your soul on, on Jesus, to read aloud from the New Testament for those who are at the table, to pray and thank God for your meal, to motivate the discussion towards mutual edification, and then you didn't limit the attendance to those who were already in on it. That's how true hospitality works. Hospitality takes what you have and shares it with another as you both enjoy it. If you guys read the textbook, I, or it's not a textbook, but if you read the book I recommended for this seri series by Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she never really talks about what I'm suggesting, but you see it everywhere. What's so striking about her hospitality is that her table is more open than any I've ever encountered in real life. You never know who you're going to find over at her house for dinner or how different they're going to be from another guest sitting right next to them. Different ends of the political spectrum, different religions, different everything. But when you look at her practice of what uh, meals look like in her house, it's the most conservative thing you've ever seen. If you're sitting at that table, you're going to sing from the Psalter together. If you're sitting at that table, you're going to listen as her, as her husband reads from the Bible and shares a devotional thought. As you sit at that table, you're going to constantly encounter people talking about Jesus. It's not awkward because it's not a sales pitch. It's a life. It's a nourishing. And people are just naturally invited into it. This is what Christian hospitality should be like. It should basically be an open invitation to enter into the life that we have, a life that is founded upon and constantly exposed to the input of and desperate for Jesus himself. When we do that, everything else takes care of itself. When we do that, the offense of the gospel becomes different because it's not one that's just about you being offensive before God. It's one that I'm desperately feeling on myself and constantly under the thumb of and in need of Jesus. It's not just, uh, <coughs> uh, it's not just an infomercial. Here's what Jesus can do for you. It's a testimonial. Here's what Jesus has done for me. Right? And it's not bifurcated into how you live with non-Christians to be a good example and how you usually live your life, which doesn't have those things. There's a consistency to it. And here's the best part to me. If we all did this, it's not just that we'd be better witnesses. We'd be more nourished. We ourselves would understand in a deeper way the sufficiency of God. Because that ultimately is a big part of why you're still here. Because the depths of what God has for you, you've barely tasted. And he's given you the rest of your life to drink deeply to be more nourished, to be more healthy than you've ever been, to be more holy than you've ever been. It's not two things, it's one thing. Again, hospitality for the Christian is feasting on Jesus and giving front row seats to all those who are around us, inviting them to the table. Let's pray. Father, the thing about eating is that we all know that it's best done 
as a daily rhythm, as a habit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would develop habits in your people, rhythms, uh, and that we would find a way for them to be not just consistent, but also open in their invitation. Protect us, Lord, from this desire we have not to offend people. But let us, like Jesus, lovingly offend. And I pray, Lord, that we would never make the mistake that we would treat or have conversations that aren't as deep as the relationship themselves. That we wouldn't be swift to just draw a line and plant a flag and differentiate ourselves from others. But there'd be an authentic overflow of what Christ has done and is doing in the life of your people that flows into the lives of our neighbors. And I pray for any this morning who who do not identify as a Christian, who have not received Jesus Christ. God, I know that that's all we're here to gather of. We're here as a church to be nourished. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see that that table has been set for them, that that invitation includes them, that there's nourishment to be found here, and that we have very little else to offer because we're not wealthy, we're hungry. We're also guests at your table. God, as we respond now, I pray that you would help us to ask the direct question, So what? How does this passage speak into my life, into my daily rhythms, into my conversations, into the invitations I I make to my table in my home? And I pray, God, even as we reflect on these things, that you would speak, that you would lay your finger on particular relationships, that for those of us who have lost our first love and are not in a period of truly nourishing ourselves in the gospel but are just coasting, Help us to repent and go back to the first things, to do the things we did as we did at first, to put ourselves into the fountain and be cleansed, to put ourselves at your table and to eat and drink deeply and to know for ourselves so that we can say to those around us, taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.